It's Thursday, March 26th, and it's our afternoon slash evening Bible study. We're back into 2 Peter chapter 1. And to give us some context, uh, I better read verse 3, but we're in verse 4. And uh, got my glasses. Actually got a little sweet tea in there. Got my crushed ice. Let's go. Here we are. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And you remember the emphasis there, all things. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now look at this text here, verse 4. Here's what we're going to deal with. By which, or through these things, we've got to figure out what the antecedent is to that. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. A lot of people have stumbled over that phrase. Let's figure that out. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. A lot there. Let's deal with it. By which, through which, through these things, the antecedent, what is it pointing back to? Look at the text. Look at verse number three. His divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which? By those things. What things? I think the most immediate antecedent is, is the answer. By his own glory and excellence. So by the glory, the greatness, and the excellence of God, he has granted us, because he's good and he's powerful, he's granted us his precious and very great promises. Now that opens up you know, a whole truckload of ideas as to what is in view here. I think Peter clearly is getting us to think about all the promises of God, and he's going to deal with so many of them in the book of Second Peter. But let's just think of the most fundamental things. Obviously, this is a letter to Christians who have that faith that they've obtained, that righteousness that God has granted to them in Christ. So, I mean, let's just talk about a few of these. The great and precious promises. I mean, here's the most fundamental promise of all. You repent, you get forgiveness. Luke chapter 24. In the verse we always quote, 1 John chapter 1, Verse 9, if we confess our sins, here's a promise. He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, there's no more important promise to Christians than that. I mean, that is that is the fundamental foundational promise. And with that comes the promise repeated throughout the scriptures and throughout Christ's ministry to give us eternal life. That's the promise. If we trust in him, if we put our trust in him, we'll have something beyond this life that is perfect, that is great, that is ideal. Jesus said, to quote John chapter 11, verse 25, at a funeral, funeral of Lazarus, he said, I'm the resurrection, I'm the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And let's just read the rest of that verse, uh, the next verse. And whoever and anyone who lives and believes in me, so they've died and they're living again, uh, shall never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? And that's the point. The believing, the trusting in the truth of what Christ has done for us. We have eternal life. We have life beyond this life. And then, of course, the promise is we're waiting for this to happen, not just for us getting to the end of our life here on this earth in terms of biological death, but, of course, the return of Christ is the anticipation of every Christian. It ought to be. We ought to be praying, your kingdom come. And Jesus said, John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. John 14, 3, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of eternal life, and the promise that he's going to come back and take his people to be with him 
Those are the things that in the scripture, among a lot of others, are the most fundamental, great, and they ought to be to us precious promises. Because if we understand our sin problem, we need forgiveness. We understand that we deserve eternal punishment. We deserve to be cast out of the presence of God, not taken unto God's presence, and to be cherished and granted a kingdom. Those are just a few of the great promises of God. You can go on Amazon, look at books about uh, the promises of God. There's a lot of good ones out there to look at all the things that God says in Scripture. Herbert Lockyer wrote a book, All the Promises of the Bible, Uh, certainly the ones that we want to look at, the good promises for his people who trust him and believe in him. I mean, there's so many things we can explore, but those are the most fundamental. Forgiveness of your sins, eternal life that's granted, And Christ saying that one day he's going to end this world as we know it and start a new one. The kingdom is going to be established and then the eternal state. These are good things. Now, our tendency is to doubt these things. Now, to get back into the context of 2 Peter, let me quote for you chapter 3, verse 4. It's just one of the promises that people are going to come and doubt, but that last one, the return of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says these scoffers are going to come and they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all our ancestors have died. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So, you know what? God's made promises, and you're reciting those promises, but um, where are where's the fulfillment? And you can have that happen in your heart when it comes to your forgiveness. You can think, well, I don't know. I don't feel forgiven. I don't know if God would forgive me. Uh, you could uh, doubt that about eternal life. I know I've trusted in Christ, I've repented of my sins, but I don't know, am I really going to heaven? Or the return of Christ as he's dealing with in chapter three, people may doubt that that's going to happen because it's been so long. Uh, The point is you need to realize our tendency as people, as Christians even, is to doubt what God has said. Let me take you to a cross-reference. We're not doing this very often because these are very short studies, but go to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six, verses 16 through 18. Hebrews six, 16 through 18. Let me read this for you. It says, people swear by someone greater than themselves, right? They're trying to make sure that you know that I'm making you an honest statement, a true statement, and I'm going to do it. They swear. That was the pattern of the old covenant. And certainly even today, people go and swear in a courtroom that they're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But here the idea is that may be the pattern of people. And it says, in all the disputes, an oath is a final confirmation. that They're telling the truth. So it says this, God, talk about a condescension of God to our need for confirmation. It says here in verse 17 of Hebrews 6, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, those who were promised things, and in this case, forgiveness, eternal life, Christ's return, we're thinking in that context, and that was the context even of Hebrews 6, forgiveness. It says he wanted to show convincingly, more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose that he's resolved in these promises. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, we've trusted in Christ, might have strong encouragement. There's our word again, by the way, parakaleo. We have that shoring up in our hearts to hold fast to the hope set before us. Even if the world's falling apart, even if you're sick, even if you don't have money, even if all things are bad on the outside, as it was for those early Christians that the writer of Hebrews writes to. They're, they're, they're under persecution, they're getting their property confiscated, and he says, hold fast to the hope of your, of your trust in Christ, that God is a faithful God to keep his promises. Well, by two unchangeable things, 
that God makes a promise, he swears an oath, and then he adds a third thing, that it's impossible for God to lie, you ought to have, I love this, the the, the assurance. You ought to have in, in your mind more convincingly in your own heart that strong encouragement, a hope that is unwavering that God is going to keep his promises. So we have great and precious promises granted to us. And we may be a little reluctant sometimes to believe them, but you ought to believe them. And I think it's an offense to God when he makes a promise like confess your sins and I'll forgive you when we doubt those things. We've got to fight doubt. And we need to know that God is a God who keeps his promises. Uh, we need to look to what those promises are, at least in this passage. We've got some specifics here that are pointed to. Look at verse 4. By which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, two things now, you might become partakers of the divine nature. I've said people have stumbled over that, and they certainly have. And have having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. If we're assured that God is going to keep his promises... There's two things here that are very helpful for us to think about. One of them is to become partakers of the divine nature. This is a very common uh, Greek phrase from uh, Plato. It's a a, a Platonic concept in Hellenistic culture of uh, being a part of God's divinity. We see a lot of that in the New Age movement as well, that we have that divine spark within us. And uh, to talk about a partaker of the divine nature at least in a, a pagan concept, this dualistic uh, platonic sense, there's a concept that people would think that, you know, I am somehow part of God, you know, part of God in some kind of ontological sense, that I am, am God, in, in at least a little God, as some might say today. Um, that clearly can't cannot be the case. There's something about God in Scripture that is so transcendent, so different, so otherly than us, that we could never aspire in our own minds to think that we are God, that we have divinity within us. Very popular for a lot of self-promoting and selfish kinds of people that we like to think that we're greater than we are. But the context here has to do with what the New Testament teaches, not what Greek philosophy teaches, not what the New Age moderns teach, but the idea that we share in some of the characteristics that God has. Let me give you a couple of them. Number one, we talk about uh, a changed heart. Listen to this from Colossians chapter 3. We have a heart that is remade and it has God's divine fingerprints all over it. Doesn't mean we're God. Doesn't mean we are somehow the fourth person of the Trinity. But here's what it means. It means that we have a new heart, a new, we're a new person from the inside. Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another, Paul says in this practical part of Colossians seeing that you've put off the old self, who you were, with all of its practices, and you've put on the new self, right? you've become a Christian, this new change, the doctrine of regeneration, and it says, which is being renewed, there's the process of sanctification, I'm becoming a different and more godly kind of Christian. It says it's being renewed, listen now, in knowledge, we talked about that last time, that's the process that fuels this, after the image of its creator. There's the idea. It gets back to second. Corinthians uh, 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, a new creature. What happens to us when we become Christians is something that God does to change the interior of who we are. As it says in Colossians chapter 3, the, uh, the self that we were, it's gone. The new self that we are now is something that we are to feed and we are to see it renewed. Just like this verse over my shoulder starts with the renewing of our mind by the knowledge of God's truth. And it says that it's being renewed after the image. It's looking more and more like 
the creator. As we said yesterday, that great passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we imitate him more and more. So we share in the characteristics of God's virtue. We're going to look at that, his his moral uh, perfection, his godliness. We start to reflect that as imperfectly as we do in this life. So in the sense that we are sharing in this divine nature, partaking in it, it's the word koinonia, by the way. You might know that from uh, the word fellowship. We talk about the Greek word koinonia. Uh, that's the word here. The, we, we, are a, uh, we have a commonality in the sense that we reflect his divine nature as he changes our heart. And then I would also add this one as it relates to immortality and the divinity of God. We share in one aspect of that divinity in that we, 1 Corinthians 15, 53 and 54, is that we have to, when we die, see the temporal fallenness of our bodies take on something new, something imperishable. It says the perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And that means that from this point on, we continue, we live eternally. That is a reflection of, that is a characteristic of divinity. Doesn't mean we're immortal as God is and that he's self-sustaining, self-perpetuating. He's perfectly contained in the Godhead, the Trinity, that he never had a beginning. We can't say that. We may never have an end, right? We are and will be, but we can't say, as God can say, that he always was and now is and will be. So the idea of reflecting that immortality, putting on that divine nature is something God grants us at death. So we get a changed heart now, and in that sense, we have a characteristic of God's attributes, his divine nature, and we have the promise at death that we will put on in this new body that we're going to get, 1 Corinthians 15, immortality. Um, Lastly, escaping the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. If you look throughout the scripture at the idea of corruption, it is the opposite of God's virtue and his goodness and the divine nature. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 2 says, The law of the spirit of life has set you free from, here's the corruption, the law of sin and death. Sin, right? We do something wrong and the law demands that we die, that there's something bad that happens. There's something in terms of our own corruption, to use the words of Galatians chapter 6, when it says in Galatians 6 that we are as Christians people that when we sow to the flesh, we do things that feed the fleshly fallen desires, we reap from the flesh corruption. And then lastly here, we can talk about the temporal consequences here and now. Uh, We recognize, as Jesus said in John chapter 8, we're sinners. When we sin, we become slaves to sin. There's a corruption, a bondage in that. But the Bible says, thanks be to God that one day he'll release all of creation from its subjection and slavery to bondage. And we ourselves will be set free when the children of God are presented. So the great and precious promises of God granted to us. God has done that because of his excellence and because of his glory that we will both now in part because of our new heart and will in the future because of sharing the immortality of eternal life. We will share, become partakers in the divine nature. And now we get to have less and less of the sowing and reaping corruption of our sin as God continues to have us renewed and making progress in the Christian life. And we get to see even in this life, the kinds of blessings that come from the removal of sin from the practice of our lives. So 
a lot here we could say, but I at least want to avoid the problem of thinking that we're little gods or we have the divine nature in ourselves in the sense that we are, um, you know, we are somehow merging our, our, our spirit with God in, in a way that changes us as to who we are as temporal beings. Um, and I want to say that we are to revel in the great promises of God, not thinking any more or any less of what God has promised to us. Much more to say on that. Chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 5, we're going to get into tomorrow and we're going to see that great expansion of how our faith continues to grow and reflect more and more of that divine nature every day. So we'll get into that tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.